Okay, you should see the slide that says the final parables. Last week, we started a brand new series on Jesus' final parables. He's only got, I'm guessing, about three months left, and he's got to reach as many people as possible. Rather than focusing on telling people about God's love, telling them what the kingdom of heaven is, and explaining that they can enter the kingdom of heaven now, which is what he had been saying, Jesus shifts his focus of his parables to talk about how the disciples and any other religious leaders who might happen to be eavesdropping should conduct themselves. In this series, watch for parables on how to treat each other, how to care for the flock, and how to view your own role in relation to God and the kingdom of heaven. Last week, the parables were largely directed towards some of the Jewish religious leaders, the elite lawyers and Pharisees. But hopefully, those lessons were not lost on the disciples. This week, we find Jesus out in the streets talking to tax collectors and other despised people. The scribes, the lawyers, and the Pharisees are muttering to each other. Look how he accepts blatant sinners and even eats with them. Of course, everyone can hear their sotto voce comments. So Jesus responds with a parable. What man, he says, having lost one sheep out of his flock of 100, does not leave the 99 and go looking for the lost one, keeping on looking until he finds it. And having found it, he rejoices and puts it on his shoulders and carries it home. Then he calls all his friends and family together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep that was lost. I say to you, there is more joy in heaven when a blatant sinner changes their mind than there is over the righteous ones who had no need to change their minds. Let's look at that last important statement by Jesus. The phrase I've translated as blatant sinner is the same Greek word that also means one who widely misses the mark. I've translated it blatant sinner in this context because that's how the scribes and Pharisees see the people Jesus is hanging around with. The phrase I've translated changes their mind is often translated as repent. But it doesn't, this word does not mean you just change your mind out of the blue. It it literally means to think differently after something has happened. So in the context of this parable, it also implies a change in direction or location. It means not being lost anymore. Notice that when Jesus talks about being lost, he's not talking about heaven or hell. He's simply talking about being lost, like a sheep gets lost. And believe it or not, that concept has deep roots in the Hebrew Bible. 
For this next bit of Hebrew insight, I'm indebted to Jeff Benner, a scholar of the Hebrew language. I really appreciate his permission to use his amazing insights. His website is ancient-hebrew.org, and these insights are drawn from a recent article he wrote titled The Way of Yahweh. As I lead you through this, I want you to notice the similarities in the letters visually, but I also want you to open your heart to absorb the connections between the words. Try to form a picture in your heart of the underlying meanings. Here's the first one. Now, all Hebrew words are formed from two or three letters. The root is like a parent. And additional words are formed by adding letters or vowel sounds to that parent. But all the words formed from the root, that particular root will have a similar meaning. For example, this root is Y. R H. And remember that Hebrew reads right to left, whereas English reads left to right. Now, here are some of the Hebrew words descended from this root. Yara, to cast, shoot, or point direction. Yara, to go down, to descend. Torah which means the direction pointed out. The Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, points the direction out to us. Torah does not mean law. Any Jew can tell you that Torah means teaching, pointing out the right direction. Here's another one. It's pronounced Zah. The words derived from it have to do with going out, bringing forth, and leading out. It's a root with a sense of migration. This first word, yitzah, is the word used in Exodus when the Lord brings the Hebrews out of Egypt. And it is a word of creation. It is the word used when God says, let the earth bring forth living creatures. The creator God brought forth the Hebrews from slavery into life. You see how that works? And this root is related to Tzah. Um, this one is Tzah. The words formed from this root, such as the words Savah and Mitzvah, have to do with the directions you receive for the journey. We tend to think of God's commandments as like boundaries or limitations, but the actual words used are rooted in the idea of direction and movement, kind of like GPS. The commandments, um, mitzvah, have to do with giving us specific turn-by-turn -turn directions for our journey so we don't get lost. So when someone follows God's commands, they're called tzaddik, which means righteous or just in scripture. It's not that they're staying inside some sort of boundary. It's that 
They're following the directions God's given them for the journey. You can see that in the actual formation of the words. This is why Jesus places such an emphasis on following him. This is why he always looks to his father to see where the father is going and what the father is doing so he can do the same. God's commands say, this is the way of Yahweh, walk in it. Psalm 119, 105 says, your words are a lamp unto my feet. God's commands light our path. God's word lights our path. Jesus is the light that has come into the world. God's desire and Jesus's purpose is to call us forth out of slavery and into life. But they don't just call us and leave us hanging. They show us how to stop being slaves and start doing life. It is so important to grasp how these words and their meanings are connected in scripture. Otherwise, we completely misunderstand the meaning of the word lost. Lost just means you've wandered off the path and you're moving in the wrong direction. You are out in the wilderness somewhere and the good shepherd is going to come find you no matter what it takes. He's not coming to punish you. He's not coming to condemn you and throw you into hell for moving in the wrong direction. He's coming to pick you up, to put your poor wounded soul on his shoulders and to carry you home where he can tend to you and give you living water to drink. This is Jesus. This is God. This is the good news. And it has been the good news all along. This is such a huge point that Jesus tells all sorts of parables about it to make absolutely sure everyone can remember it. Here comes some more. He says, what about a woman who has 10 coins? She suddenly realizes one is missing. She lights a lamp. She sweeps the house. She looks everywhere for the lost coin. Jesus doesn't say this, but this coin is obviously precious to her. And that's the point of this parable. Then, Jesus says, when she does find it, she calls all her friends and neighbors and says, Eureka, I have found my lost coin. Rejoice with me. Jesus says that is the sort of rejoicing there is among the angels of God when one single person, someone who has widely missed the mark, finally changes their mind. And then Jesus brings the parable home to a hurting and wounded place that many of our families share. Jesus says, once upon a time, there was a man who had two sons. The younger son came to his father and said, give me my portion of the estate. And so the father divided the estate between the two sons. It took him a few days to get everything together. But finally, the younger son left for a country far away. Once there, he wasted his entire inheritance on living large. 
This is what prodigal means. It means wasteful or extravagant. And that's why this young man is called the prodigal son. He completely wasted all the gifts he was given. Unfortunately, after he'd spent everything, there was a famine in the land and he began to feel the pinch. Finally, things got so desperate that he got a job feeding pigs out in the country. Eventually, he got so hungry, he was tempted to eat the slop he was feeding to those pigs. And when he caught himself thinking that, he said to himself, wait a minute, even my father's hired hands have plenty of food to eat. What am I doing starving to death here? I'll go, I'll go home to my father and say, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just take me back as a hired hand. And thus resolved, he sets out towards home. Well, his father saw him coming from a long way off and his heart went out strongly towards his son. He ran to his son, wrapped his arms around him in a big hug and kissed him. And his son gave him the speech he prepared asking for a job as a hired hand. But his father was having none of that. He called his servants to quickly bring out the best robe and give his son a ring and give him sandals to wear and then prepare a great feast so everyone could celebrate. The father cried, this is my son who was dead, but is alive again. He was lost and is found. And everyone joined in the great party, celebrating and making merry. Everyone, that is, except the elder son who was out working in the field. As he drew near home, the elder son heard all the music and dancing he called a servant over and asked him what was going on. And when he heard the news, he was so angry that he refused to even go into the party. His father came and begged him to come in. But the elder son cried out, all these years I have worked for you. I have never disobeyed a single commandment of yours even gave me so much as a little goat so I could make merry with my friends. And now my brother has eaten up your life savings, spending it on prostitutes, and for him you killed the best calf in the herd? But his father said, son, you are always with me. Is yours. It was right for us to celebrate, for your brother was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now is found. And that is the end of the parable. So that's three parables in a row about losing and finding something precious that Jesus tells the scribes and Pharisees who are grumbling because Jesus hangs around with tax collectors and sinners despised people who are, who are, in fact, precious to God and worth every minute of Jesus' time. 
This next parable is one Jesus tells his disciples. Keep that firmly in mind as we listen to the story. Jesus says, once upon a time, there was a man who had a steward and someone accused the steward of squandering the man's possessions. Now, a steward is what we would call a manager nowadays. And this manager is like the executive vice president of this rich man's business affairs. And he's gone and squandered the rich man's money. The word squandering is used in virtually every major translation. But we could also use wasting, winnowing, dispersing, or scattering. Seeing all those other meanings helps me get a visual of seeds being tossed up into the air or scattered. This guy has been an absolutely terrible manager, indiscriminately tossing money right and left. Jesus uses the word dishonest to describe him. Well, when the owner finds out, he calls that manager on the carpet and tells him he's fired and he needs to turn over all his books and records. But he apparently gives the manager time to get the accounting records in shape. And you can imagine what kind of shape they must be in. Well, the manager is in a pickle. As soon as he turns over the books and records, he'll be out of a job. And he thinks to himself, I'm not strong enough to do manual labor. And I would be ashamed to beg. And he realizes he's got to find another job as a manager. But who in the world will want to hire him now? As a side note, I had to do a little reading between the lines here, but but I think I do believe this is the meaning of these particular verses in Luke 16. I think he's he's looking for, he, he realizes he's only suited to do work as a manager and nobody's going to want to hire him. So here's what he does. He hatches a plan. He calls in each of the rich man's debtors and asks them, how much do you owe? It's, a, it's an indication of the state of his accounting that he has no idea how much anyone owes. <laughs> One guy says, well, I owe 900 gallons of olive oil. And the manager says, take your bill, sit down quickly and change it to 450 gallons. Now, remember, this executive VP does have the authority to discount bills. It's a normal part of his job. So even though the debt is technically to the rich man, the debtor is going to be grateful to the manager personally for giving him the discount. It's like when you go to a store and the manager gives you a big discount on an item that has slight damage. You aren't grateful to the store as much as you are to the manager. You remember her and perhaps tell the story to your friends about what great customer service she gave you. Well, the manager calls in the next guy and asks him, how much do you owe? And the guy says, I owe 1,500 bushels of wheat. Now that is a lot of wheat. This manager has obviously been in charge of a huge commercial enterprise. And anyone owing as much olive oil and wheat as these guys do must be middlemen. They must be large commercial players themselves. They are exactly the sort of people who would hire a manager. Hmm, I begin to see the manager's strategy here. The manager tells him, change your bill to 1,200 bushels instead of 1,500. And so he does. 
Of course, when the manager turns in his accounting, the owner sees exactly what he's done and when he's done it. But the owner, being a savvy businessman himself, also understands why the manager has done it. And it sounds like the owner gets a belly laugh out of this, even though the stunt was at his own expense. Jesus says the owner applauds the manager for his quick thinking. Then Jesus explains the parable to his disciples, even before they ask. I mean, <laughs> I, would have, I would love to have been a fly on the wall and seen their faces at this one. He says, the people of this present time are more savvy with each other than people of the light are. You should be using wealth to make friends so that when your wealth runs out, they will welcome you into eternal homes. So Jesus is giving a little twist to what the manager did. Jesus has been telling the disciples all along not to place their trust in money. And he's using this story to tell them that money is to be given away. In giving it away, they will certainly make friends like this terrible manager did. But their reward will be a welcome into the eternal homes of the people they've helped. And that reminds me of Jesus saying that the rewards of our deeds will be in heaven. Even the wording in the Greek makes it sound like the, the folks the disciples are kind to will be the very ones welcoming them or rewarding them in heaven. And that fits with Jesus teaching that the least of these are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. But then Jesus takes it a step further. The manager in the story was hoping to get a job with one of these businessmen, but he'd been untrustworthy, right? You have to wonder if anybody would be willing to hire him after this. So Jesus tells his disciples, if you are trustworthy in small things, you demonstrate you can be trusted with much. But if you're not trustworthy in handling worldly riches, then how can you be trusted with what really counts? How can you be trusted with truth? That makes sense. If we cannot be trusted to hold worldly riches with open hands, if we cannot give our riches away, how can we be trusted with God's riches? How can we be trusted with the good news? If we are gripping our worldly riches, then we surely do not understand the good news. Jesus says, if you have not been trustworthy, um, and this word is sometimes translated as faithful, if you have not been trustworthy with what belongs to someone else, who would entrust you with something of your own? In context, this is related to the manager's behavior, but I think Jesus is also speaking directly to the disciples as followers in Jesus' footsteps. Just last week, Jesus told the Pharisees, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them life forever. They will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who gave them to me is greater than all. And no one can snatch them out of his hand either. Jesus has been trustworthy in all of God's things. And God gave us to him, his sheep, as his own. 
Jesus is about to hand this precious flock over to the disciples to tend, right? Jesus is, of course, still our eternal shepherd, but this flock will need to be tended here in this world by the disciples. And if they cannot be trusted to give away wealth, which belongs to God and is to be used for God's purposes, then how can they be entrusted with the people themselves? It is a huge point, and Jesus sums this entire parable up for the disciples by saying, no one can serve two masters. You will hate one and love the other, or you will cling to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, sneer at Jesus. But Jesus says to them, You declare yourselves righteous, but God knows your hearts. Whatever is exalted by men is detestable to God. I think Jesus is saying that anything we put in God's place is, by definition, an abomination. And that most certainly includes our own self-righteousness as well as money. That's a whale of a parable, isn't it? I've given you my interpretation. There are many others. You can Google the parable of the unjust steward if you want to read other folks' ideas. In our breakout groups, though, I'd like to go back to the parable of the prodigal son. It's one many people are already familiar with, but I think it's worth a closer look. All righty, there everybody is. I hope this was interesting, a different way to look at this thing. Um, Joe, did you have something? Oh, no, I'm trying to figure out why my background looks so goofy. Okay, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> okay. It's good to see everybody. Yeah, it really oh. is. And it was good to see Martha. She had to go. She is in her car and driving and mm. had to go, so... And Rhonda is, um, has a church meeting and then next week she'll be traveling again. So, and I think Marlene, you're gone next week. It's just summertime. That's all it is. For the next time. Yeah. 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 So the, the questions this time we're, we're looking back at the story of the prodigal son, but this time we're kind of looking at it from the older son's point of view and, uh, thinking about if, for one thing, it, it was striking, I think, that the, the father divided the inheritance between both the sons at that time. I thought that was really interesting. And I wondered, okay, so if he did that, what kind of property did the younger son get versus what kind of property did the older son get? What well, back you- it up, Gail. We had a question. What was the inheritance? Mm. What was what? The usual standard of inheritance with the older and younger. Oh, good question. We started with that and had to make assumptions and move on. Okay. Yeah, I actually don't know the answer to that. Yeah. We we decided that we decided that the wealth was the farm. And whatever uh, farm and crops, and then whatever um, um, sheep and goats and cows he had, the flocks, and money. 
And the only thing he could give the younger son had to be portable because the younger son was going to go off. He gave all the money to his younger son. And then what that meant was the older son worked even harder to make sure that the farm could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was kind of what we concluded as well, is that um, the father looked at the monetary monetary value of the estate and gave the younger son half of that value in but that would leave the farm cash poor property but cash poor mm-hmm. which might have explained why the older son then complained to his dad you wouldn't even give me a to have a party with my friends the father have said we can't afford it we need so- every goat we have to be able to survive that's right. So sadly, Anne, Anne McEnroe and Joe McEnroe derailed our group because <laughs> this story that was is not- a little full for she and I right now yeah. because she's still in a state settlement and now I've entered it and we are both the oldest and we are both ones who were raised with a lot of guilt and expectation that the younger kids didn't have. So this story landed right smack for us, but that in the end, as a parent, I would have done the same thing that the prodigal kids did. And I think about this, I I better not be so fast to cast the stones at my son because I'm sure hoping God doesn't cast stones at me when it's my turn returning. That doesn't that doesn't mean that we don't have um, jealousy, envy, and anger issues to work on, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, don't forget resentment. We brought up resentment. We brought up resentment. We brought yeah, it up noodles. about the disciples and how they might feel in that weed in our heart that we must be vigilant for. I yeah. thought resentment. Yeah, yes. we, we were thinking resentment and don't. in that area but i mean it does you know just from a purely human perspective it just makes so much sense that the old of the fact his brother basically made cash for went off blew all the money comes back and gets a big party and the most valuable stock that they had in their possession was killed yeah he got a ring and new clothes. And we're trying to figure out what the ring's about too. <laughs> yeah, would that have would that have been part of the older brother's estate that was given away? It wasn't given away to the younger brother and it was certainly portable. I wonder if it had sentimental value to the father. What is it symbolic, the never-ending promise? Right. I think that'd be like a signet, like signature. It's probably a family, probably a family heirloom or something. Mm-hmm. I noticed, I noticed I should have gotten that. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, how I felt. Yeah. And and I think that thing is the younger son got his inheritance and was able to go blow it in the forever. Well, the older son was expected to stay home and help the family. And I would think that would cause a lot of resentment too. Because 
I can't go to the next town and a bunch of money because I have to stay here. Mm -hmm. I'm tied to the farm. Well, and also the comments in the parable are I followed all your directions. I did I carried out all your instructions. I did what you told me to do all the time. I had no freedom. It kind of makes you think of like it's a wonderful life, you know? Yeah. Because he never could go anywhere. Nobody Right. But he couldn't. Mm -hmm. I, it, it's a dysfunction for me. It's a dysfunctional family and the role types. Anne and I, and I made a comment in the thing that now what I know is that we took that responsibility and we could have walked away from it or set a boundary for ourselves, but we weren't raised to think that. Mm -hmm. And it took time to, I guess, just. I'm in effort to, to work on these things, grow them and enrich them. Yeah. I, I and, and I'm not the oldest, I'm the youngest, but my family was very gender centric. Same. So my parents got sick, I took care of them. When they needed something done at the house, I took care of it. My brother was like the prodigal son and he was flying his planes and going all over the place. And I, home to take care of my parents so I can understand how somebody can feel trapped of their own doing have to stay home and take care of my parents and and the older the older son was like um was like the disciples in that they had duties mm -hmm. you know and he the older son felt obligated to mm -hmm. to fulfill his duty and the feel the same way, and they would feel like, well, Jesus, Jesus was not requiring all these other people to to carry out these. He was being very kind to them, and the, the their son would feel the same way. So I guess that's how that's how the old son and the disciples are similar. Right. I wonder if sorry, I wonder if Judas was the older son and finally came to the point where he's like, I'm getting out of here and I'm going to, you know, take their 30 pieces of silver and walk. I mean, it could have been that kind of resentment is what this was, was living. Boy, that and I never would have thought of that. Judas was like, this wasn't what I signed up for. Yeah. <laughs> and he's the older son. He's doing everything he's supposed to, and he's just sitting there in a little stew pot and causing a lot of some resentment to, towards Jesus because he's not expecting them to do, you know, the other people he's talking to and say he doesn't expect them to do anything. And Judas is like, we're doing it. Yeah. I'm, I, I would like to add very quickly, if I can, because I was going to be quiet after the last one. The question was about what weeds pluck. Well, so I know my weeds. We might know what the weeds were. I mean, the sins are listed out, right? Maybe the point is that um, maybe my understand. Sorry, he definitely does. He does, yeah. Joe. And and it's not something you have to. 
get into, but it's great that you acknowledge that and notice that. Right. You're aware of that. Family, family dynamic is for everybody, right? In the family. <laughs> oh, well, Renee had a great example about her dog and being lost. And that was what we were talking about was how God feels when the lost soul is found. And we're talking about Renee's dog. <laughs> I guess it's a perfect analogy. Yeah, yeah our, our dog um, was an escape artist. Um and he was little. I mean, he was he was a border collie. So I mean, he was like a medium sized dog. Jump in a fence, climb over any fence, and he was. You'd put him out. You were him. He would go with the fence. And of course, I had a three year old at the time that he kept getting out. And so I put her in a bat. You know, look for him. And I was the whole time. I'm going. I'm going rid of that dog. That dog. You know, he's dead meat. And then as soon as I see him, he was doing, even if he was covering himself in mud, it was like, I was so happy to see We all were just, I was overjoyed that he didn't get hit by a car and he was okay. So I can understand the prodigal son's dad had no idea whether his son was alive or dead because there was no internet and no telephones or, you know, and probably people didn't write letters. So he didn't know where his son was or what and was happening. And he surely knew his son was immature and likely to get in trouble. Yeah. Just like my dog that kept running away. It was like, you know, I always welcomed him back. So I want to shift this slightly and take it back to the disciples and to us, to those of us who are the elder brother who have been working in the kingdom all along. I think what Jesus is getting at here is he's pretty pointedly asking, how would you feel if at the last second you find out nobody goes to hell? It's it's all about expectations and what your expectations are. It's like if, if you are uh, doing all this work um, and you're expecting to get repaid for it somehow, and, you know, even the disciples, they, are, they fell into talking about who's, who's going who's gonna, to, who's the most important, who's going to get the most the same way. You know, it's like instead of doing the work because that's what God wants us to do, because he had these expectations of what he would get in return. I think it's your intention as well, just like what you said, Woody. I think it's your intention. I think even if there is no hell, even if all this is irrelevant, if you look and you do your best and you care about people, you will have a good life. It comes back to you. It's like karma, you know? If you're out there sniping at people and being ugly and not doing nice things, oh, yeah, well, you'll reap the consequences of that. But if you try and love people and accept them for who they are and 
keep trying, even when they screw up, keep trying, then you could get frustrated from time to time. People will step on your toes. But I think living a good life and trying to do what you believe and you're led to you're going to reap the consequences right here and now with that but it's like you said a few minutes ago it's your it's your motive if you do because um because that's what god wants you that's a motive things that you think that will get you into heaven that's the selfish motive Mm -hmm. exactly yeah. It almost gets into the, um, what do they call it? Where oh, right, you're right, going right. to get money. If you're doing all the right things, you're going to be getting money and stuff like that. And it's like, that's totally misses the mark. Yeah. Well, uh, what Jesus so we don't pay as much, but we work real hard, but we work real hard and we do things for the good of community and it's a really great place to work if i were to work in another area i could get a lot of money there would be consequences to that i've done it before and it was hard <laughs> hello teacher <laughs> <laughs> yes <laughs> i think i think taking this back to the disciples um, and your question Gail, about um, how would they have felt, you know, that Jesus was asking them, how would you feel? I think part of that might have been Jesus preparing them for the fact that it wasn't only going to be the Jews who would be welcome into the kingdom, but the the um, Gentiles. Mm. Um, and that might have been what helped prepare the way Peter, when he had that vision later about the animals coming down and then going into the home of the Roman ruler to be able to say, God's okay with this. Mm -hmm. And then Paul's whole ministry. Um, you know, the Jews were the they had followed God for generations and generations and they had suffered the consequences when they didn't, and they were doing everything that they thought God was asking them, bringing the sacrifices and, you know, observing the Sabbath and not eating things and not wearing things. The Romans are going to be accepted too. <laughs> the that's a great connection, <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, that's awesome. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it, to me. It's it's. I think that's remarkable connection. And 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 what I'm thinking is Jesus is trying to point them back because you remember James and John kept wanting to be you know be the biggest in the kingdom, and they're always arguing over stuff like that. And Jesus, I think, keeps telling them it's not it's not about this some end goal somewhere. That what you are doing right now, the journey, like Julia was saying, the journey you are on, that is what it's about. You have the light now. 
You are in the light now. The light is the reward. You have it. You have everything. It's just like the father was saying to the elder son, you already have it all. You already have it. Hmm. Appreciate it. Look at it differently. Don't look at it like your, your, your younger brother got something you didn't get. You already have it all. So it's just that the older brother didn't understand and appreciate he already had it all. Yes. And I think that Jesus is worried about the disciples not understanding and appreciating that either. They feel like they're working so hard and they're climbing that corporate ladder and, you know, and it's all about to fall apart. And they need to understand. They don't understand. They're just bewildered by it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, um, it also kind of goes to the the points to living in the here and now is what we need to do and not worry more. Exactly. Because tomorrow may never come. We but have life now. now. We have life now. Yeah. Isn't that the so parable? Don't worry about it. It's going to be yeah. taken care of. You got it right now. You got it right here. Yeah. And so you have nothing to lose. Jesus is trying to show them they have nothing that can be lost. Not it. Or that their lives, their lives, they don't need to worry about their lives. That's not the important thing. That's right. Whatever things this world can take away from them are not the important things. That, that, that takes me to also, I can't remember if it was in this Bible study or my heart at church, the difference between big D death and little D death. That, you know, we all of these statements about how God has abolished death. Well, we people die all the time. And and you know, you will never die. If you fall on me, you never die. Um that's literally death that I'm thinking the big D is like spiritual death, ultimate ceasing to exist at all. And that that is what we're being promised is that we will not suffer big D death mm-hmm. of God's love for us. Yeah, that goes back to what all of humanity um, that God is constantly working to give us a way to not experience that ultimate death. Of course, our bodies are going to die. That's natural. Um, and so the whole concept of death being brought into the world by Adam and Eve. There were predators. I don't, I don't think I don't think lions were were herbivores. <laughs> um, there were from the beginning of time. And so we're not talking about physical death. I'm wondering if we are are if we have been created for life and only for life. 
And I'm wondering if, if God also, if we can trust what God said that he created us to be with him in his image, you know, to be part of him. Um, and I'm wondering if there really is such a thing as big D death. I'm wondering if what happens is we're freed from all the little D deaths. Yeah. A thing that I was trying to say. Yeah. You know, I, what if we're freed from all, all that is evil of which little D death clearly is a separation, right? It's a separation between us and, and each other. Mm -hmm. And that, that of the passage from Matthew in which Jesus says, don't be afraid of what can kill your body. Be afraid of those that can kill your soul. Right. Yeah. The one that can kill your soul is only one, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. and he's, and he's not in the business of killing our souls. <laughs> you know, when we lose our way, it's so hard. It's hard for us. It's hard for us. If we can find our way back, there's that rejoicement again in ourselves, our, our Heavenly Father. Yes. That we found our way again. Right. I agree with that. That was true. Is that if I had done the same thing, is for us to be gathered together. I, I think that's all he wants for us mm -hmm. with him. I agree. I think that's what this is about is being together. This was a pretty profound group. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Like for that connection. Yeah. That connection was so what I needed to hear. Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, I will see you all next week. It's been it's fun looking at these parables because we don't look at them closely enough, I think. So this is a ton of fun. And I'll see y'all next Thursday. Yeah. I'll hey, see, see you later. All, Bye. I'll see you all in three weeks. Or whenever we I'll, see you. Yes. I'll watch the videos. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye, Bye Joe. Bye-bye.